Hi folks, Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. Welcome back to another edition of Growing Boulder where we prove each and every week that it's never too late to create the life that you want. On today's show, one of the world's greatest experts on longevity, what he knows can add years to your life. Also, Mark, we'll talk to the founder of the Worldwide Orphans Foundation and Angelina Jolie's pediatrician on how you can adopt at any age, plus the director of the film Age of Champions and one of the most incredible Olympic athletes in history who at age 59 says she's not done yet. Well, he's an explorer, an educator, co-producer of an Emmy Award-winning documentary. He holds three world records for endurance bicycling, and he's a best-selling author who started the Blue Zones after traveling the world for National Geographic magazine to find out where people live the longest and the healthiest lives. And that's why we dig this guy, because what he found is encouraging news for everybody. The people who live in these Blue Zones, these pockets of longevity... They don't share like a specific diet or one particular kind of exercise, but they all live active social lives and includes moderation in what they eat and drink. In other words, it's something you can do, too. Let's find out more about it by welcoming Dan Butner. How are you, Dan? I've never been better. You know, Great you're like to be with you. You are like the good news man all of a sudden, aren't you? People <laughs> want to get you on because you do. You shine that light of hope out there that that maybe all of us have a chance to live a long, fulfilling life. Well, you know, the the average maximum life expectancy of Americans, or the longest the average American can live, is about ninety two. But our life expectancy is only about seventy nine. So somewhere we're leaving a dozen years on the table. And uh, what we've done is studying those populations that are actually make, most people are making it to that healthy age 90. Well, you know, Dan, this is the third or fourth time we've had you on this program. But first of all, thanks for sticking with us. We thought maybe you'd gotten too big to talk to us. So uh, Never, never, never. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, uh, and for those listeners of ours who have not yet understood what the Blue Zones are, the five Blue Zones, geographic areas of longevity, where are they? Sardinia, Italy, up in the highlands, more 100-year-old men in the world than anyplace else. Uh, Okinawa, Japan, longest-lived women. Uh, the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica. Uh, in America here, it's among the Seventh-day Adventists in and around Mola Linda, California. They live about 10 years longer than the rest of us. And then the island of Icaria, Greece, which is a place where people are not only living about eight more good years, but they they somehow are eluding dementia. Hmm. Uh, very few people ever suffer, uh, get old and suffer from Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, about a fifth the rate we have here in America. That's incredible. You know, uh, Mark mentioned how, you know, we hope you're not getting too big for our show, but there's a lot of truth to that. Since you came out with this, people are fascinated by what you've discovered and what you've learned, and it's kind of funny how life reveals itself. And it will transform your life if you let it, because you became interested in the Blue Zones. You were just, what, riding your bike? <laughs> well, I, when I came, went out of college, uh, I, I uh, biked from Alaska to Argentina, around the world, and across Africa. But those rides as a young man got me into uh, National Geographic, and, and uh, I've been uh, working for them, and there was about a decade between the bike rides and the Blue Zone assignment uh, that I covered more scientific topics for them. Uh, but you know what's really neat? The big epiphany when it comes to longevity is that none of these spry centenarians ever really tried to live to be 100. They never said, well, I'm going to get on the Blue Zone diet when they're 50 years old. Uh, what happened in every case was that longevity uh, really happened to them as opposed to them trying to pursue it. It ensued from living in the right environment. So what, what I've been doing uh, since the book came out is – is um, uh, working with whole cities to make blue zones out of them. In fact, today I'm in Fort Worth, Texas, where this whole city is going to try to become a blue zone, not by trying to hound individuals to change their diet or exercise program, but really by changing the city so the active and the healthy options are the easy options. Hmm. 
And, you know, uh, Dan, I, I think most of us know now, uh, whether everybody believes it or not, that longevity is is 75 percent or so lifestyle and only 25 percent in our genes. And, and for many people, uh, it, it seems like it's easier for them to believe that genes will doom them to inactivity and poor health. I mean, the fact that lifestyle is the major component bears with it a certain responsibility to get off the couch. And from our experience, not everyone is enthusiastic about that prospect. A lot of people are happy just to sit back and let life pass them by. Well, it's lifestyle. That's how you're right about that statistic, but it's, it's lifestyle and environment. So instead of necessarily hounding people to get off the couch, I would tell them to, to plant a garden because you put that in and you put the seeds in at the beginning of the season, and then you think, hmm, well, those tomatoes are growing. I better get out and water them. Mm. I better get out and weed the garden. Uh, make sure that you have a pair of comfortable shoes. So in case the urge overcomes you to walk to the store instead of driving, that you have a comfortable, um, comfortable shoes to do it in. And then really thinking about who your social network is. Because, of course, if all your friends are couch dwellers, that's probably what you're going to do when you, when you socialize with them. But if your friends you know, are bike riders or golfers or bowlers, um, that's what you're going to naturally do when you're with them. So it's setting up kind of the mindless little nudges in your life that make the active option the easy option as opposed to always having to remember to do something you don't really like to do. And just so people don't misunderstand, Dan, you, you feel that it's not necessarily the geographic location that resulted in the longevity. It's more about the lifestyle. It's more about the things they eat or the things they're forced to do rather than, you know, watch TV and eat uh, potato chips. Yeah, so I'll give you a good example here in America. Um, San Luis Obispo, which I covered in my book Thrive, uh, that has the lowest obesity rates and the lowest rates of smoking uh, in the country. Now, is that because everybody has gotten on a, gotten on a diet program and a non-smoking program? No. They live in a place where the ordinances make it inconvenient to smoke. Uh, they live in a place where the local municipal laws make it sure that if you want to bike someplace, there's a bike lane, uh, and that um, uh, sprawl is kind of limited so that you can stand any place in town and see a place where you could hike and it would be beautiful. So it's not just traffic and endless suburbs, which aren't always nice to you know, walk in. So um, my point is that I think the big opportunity America has to turn around this obesity epidemic is really start thinking about how we engineer our personal environments and our cityscapes. Well, it's a great project, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what other projects uh, you, you have uh, on the burner moving forward. But before we, we get off the blue zones themselves, uh, you know, it, it seems like as a culture, you know, the world now almost destroys things that we initially revere. Are you concerned at all now that there is all this attention focused on these blue zones that people, uh, you know, rather than us learning from them that our lifestyle will, in fact, encroach upon theirs and, and that they will no longer be the blue zones tomorrow that they are today? Yes, I do. I do worry about it. Uh, in, each, in every case, these blue zones are disappearing phenomena. And as the American food culture and, and development uh, washes over these places, they lose the, the lifestyle and the environment that yielded longevity. And, um, but I think, uh, I think what's important is, is I was able to capture it. I was able to capture that... Uh, um, the environments and, and the uh, facets of a blue zone, and the opportunity lies in recreating them in America. And uh, we, we recreated a blue zone in Los Angeles uh, in uh, the beach cities down there, the health district, and uh, we were able to lower the population, uh, lower the obesity rate of an entire city by almost 15% by just recreating what those blue zones, the, the environments those blue zones have had in place for hundreds of years. Look what, look what you've done, Dan. One guy making a big difference in the world. In the last 15, 20 seconds we have, can you leave us with a takeaway? I mean, the, what's the most powerful lesson we can learn? The most powerful lesson is to write down your five best friends and think about how they influence your health behaviors. 
Uh, do they make you feel happy when you're around them? Do they make you feel lonely? Uh, do they make you want to go eat junk or they want to get you, make you feel like, make you want to get out and move? And realizing who those friends are, if they all have negative uh, influences, I would say go out and augment your social network. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. As Mark just crossed me off his list. <laughs> now, listen, you are one of the era's most interesting characters. You're not only exploring oh, the world, you you're exploring how we all can not only live longer but better. Dan, you're amazing. You've got a fabulous Facebook page, folks. Check out and like Blue Zones. And then check his website at bluezones.com. Extend your life as long as you can. Thanks, Dan. Coming up next, only we can take you inside Harriet's closet, and Wendy Chioji has a question or two for you. How old are you? How old do you feel? I'm Wendy Chioji, and still ahead on Growing Bolder, I'll give you some advice that may help you look at your age with a brand new attitude. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder, and you're about to meet one of the most amazing 91-year-olds anywhere. She's renowned philanthropist Harriet Lake. Harriet has a major passion for fashion that is only exceeded by her passion for helping others. And in rare access, granted only to Growing Boulder, you're about to go inside her closet, an amazing two-level complex built around one of those big commercial dry cleaner conveyors. This is a rare and exclusive look inside one of the most amazing closets anywhere. It belongs to 91-year-old Harriet Lake, who says she has a disease. That's true. How would you describe it? It's, uh, I can't resist clothes. I can't resist beautiful clothes. But you're and not bothered. I admit it, I'm an addict, I'm a junkie. You're not trying to kick it, though, are you? Oh, no. Even if I were penniless, I would be out there working for fabric, and then I'd make my own stuff with a sewing machine. Harriet designed her entire house around this closet after seeing something similar in a magazine article on actor George Hamilton. The guy with the tan? Yes. Uh, he had a 10-foot closet, and he put a conveyor belt in it. I said, I'm going to call the company... He says, no problem as long as you have 10-foot ceilings. So that's why this house has 10-foot ceilings. Everything revolved around the closet. While her closet is big, it's not big enough. She's turned her three-car garage into another closet and still needed more room. So you're, you have some stuff in a warehouse. Uh, 5,000 square feet, yeah. These days, Harriet does most of her buying from catalogs and magazines. So what kind of an outfit do you see in a magazine that you say, got to have it? Oh, there are a lot of them. I call. I get them. So you see this in a catalog, and you just yeah. have to have it. Something happens. That's right. Something happens. It was a 1000 bucks, and that's how. And you call them up? and Call them up, and they send it right up. They... This piece is Dior, and it came from France. I called New Jersey, the Dior Boutique. Sent it over from France. And I saw it on, uh, what's her name? Charlize Theron. Theron. And the hat is like 40 years old. Wow. I have no idea, but I love it, and it's so outrageous and stupid. How many outfits does she have? Even she doesn't know that. Someone from UCF counted how many hats I have. It came to 1,600, but I think I have more. How many shoes do you have? That varies because... I've had three hip replacements, and every time I go through another one, the heels get flatter and flatter and shorter and shorter. So I've gone through, 
who knows? The other day I was in Neiman Marcus. I bought eight pairs of shoes. They were flats. And of course, she likes to accessorize. She has a large collection of vintage and designer jewelry and purses. In fact, she's loaned the Orlando Art Museum a nearly priceless collection of 100 bejeweled Judith Lieber vintage clutches. Even Judith Lieber has a museum of her own. And she's still looking for books that I already own. I mean, jeweled pocketbooks that are books. Wow. Can you picture that? Well, I have them. While she knows some of the world's most fashionable females, there are only two wardrobes in the world that she envies. Number one... Queen Elizabeth. She's got these great English hats with these gorgeous silk coats and suits. I mean, they're incredible, and the colors and everything. And then number two would be Barbara Walters. When I played bridge every day for 30 years, yeah. every day I would look at what Barbara Walters had on in The View. And whatever she had on, I just duplicated. I mean, it was, it was easy. I even have pictures of her wearing the same stuff I've got. Or I'm wearing the same stuff she's got. I don't know. How would you describe your style? I don't know what style is, but I know it when I see it. Uh, some people have incredible style. Those are the people who usually have on a black dress and... Uh, there's something about the little black dress, you can't deny it. They look incredible. You can put a coat over them, you can put pearls on them, you can put a jewel on them. A basic black, which you can buy at Costco for 18 bucks, will carry you anywhere. <laughs> it really will. Before you conclude that Harriet Lake is just a quirky, wealthy widow, consider that she has been steadily giving away her entire fortune since 2004. There are over 20 buildings and parks in Central Florida that bear her name, and she writes checks to nearly 200 local charities every year, totaling millions of dollars. The old cliche, you can't take it with you. I'm not taking anything with me. She's also very active in women's rights and helps get out the women's vote, which is why she's wearing her Votes for Women sash today. Her only self-indulgence is fashion, and she doesn't regret a single piece she's purchased. She only regrets the few pieces that she gave away. Like an Audrey Hepburn coat that she wore in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, that orange coat. Every time I think of it, I go into hysteria. You had it? I had it. Not her coat, but one exactly like it. And you wore it? it. Was, oh, yeah, it was orange. Are you still inspired by fashion and clothing today oh. as much as you were 10 years ago? Maybe even more, because now, now it's coming to the end. And if I don't get it now, I'm never going to get it. <laughs> Do you have a favorite piece today? If there was a fire here, yeah. I would take the $19 black dress and get out. From Costco? From Costco. For now, her biggest problem is simply finding something to wear. I found it. I found it. Oh, she found it, and she looked good in it. As Harriet gives away her fortune a million bucks at a time, her only self-indulgence bill is, as we said, her passion for fashion. And you really can't fault that because, as we've seen many times over, it's passion that keeps people young and active as they age. Awesome woman and a community treasure, Mark, who leads by example when it comes to helping others. We all need a little pep talk every now and then. A well-timed motivational moment, boy, it sure can go a long way. And when it comes to growing bolder, our own Wendy Chioji is well worth listening to because, folks, she has some street cred. Hi, I'm Wendy Chioji. Never buy into the negative stereotypes about age, not just for your benefit, but for that of future generations. We're not suggesting that middle age doesn't bring with it many challenges. It does, just as being 10 or 20 does. Life can be challenging at any age, just as it can be rewarding at any age. So never apologize for or be embarrassed by your age because it's never too late to continue to chase your dreams. We have the power to redefine what it means to grow old, to prove that turning 50 or 60 or even 90 is not the end of a meaningful, productive life. In many cases, it's just the beginning.
And Wendy will tell you that the beginning of the most productive, exciting, and rewarding time of her life is when she actually found the strength to quit her job and started doing the things she loves most on a daily basis. And the truth is, she didn't know if it was all going to work out. You never really do, Bill. You just need the strength and the courage to try. Yeah, and once you have that, Mark, you need the belief and the persistence to kind of stay with your decision. And now, instead of working a 9-to-5 job, Wendy's raising money for cancer research, advocating for the less fortunate, traveling working out, competing, and of course, working with Growing Boulder. Coming up next, Angie's pediatrician, who's an internationally renowned expert on adoption, and she's going to tell us all about becoming a parent in your 50s or 60s. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton. we got a great guest for you now. She's a pediatrician who is known worldwide now as the orphan doctor. In fact, she's pediatrician to Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's adopted children. She's the founder of the Worldwide Orphans Foundation. She's touched the lives of countless parents, including actresses Mary Louise Parker, Kristen Davis, and Connie Britton, by helping them all through the adoption process. She's been named Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year. She's been profiled by the New York Times and many other magazines and featured on NBC, CBS and CNN's national newscast. And on top of all that, Mark, she's written a great book entitled Carried in Our Hearts, and it's a book that shares the true stories of becoming an adoptive parent. So let's welcome internationally renowned adoption expert, Dr. Jane Aronson. Hey, Dr. Jane, how are you doing? I'm good. Very nice to be with you, Mark and Bill. You know, before we learn more about your work, can you tell us how big an issue is this globally? How many orphan children are we talking about? Is this a a huge number or small? Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, there are about, you know, there are hundreds of millions of orphan children. But, you know, the figure that UNICEF um, gave us in 2009 was 153 million Hmm. uh, children living as orphans, either having lost one or both parents. And when you think that, you know, uh, 2.2 billion children in the world, that's a lot of children who are orphaned. Man, it's pain and sadful to think about. Despite the fact there are that many millions worldwide who don't have families, aren't international adoptions, uh, especially for Americans, getting more difficult? What countries are you working in? Um, well, the the part of me that does adoption medicine would be, you know, I would be involved and engaged with parents adopting from all continents. So the numbers of adoptions is way down from its grand total of 20, 23,000 in 2004 down to below 9,000 in 2012. And it's coming down even more probably by the end of 2013. Uh, but then the other half of me is uh, Worldwide Orphans, which is service to children in their own countries. And we've been in 14, and we're currently working in five countries with uh, tens of thousands of children who need services in education, medicine, and psychosocial support. Are you finding, Dr. Jane, that there are more and more families out there that either can't have children or are beyond childbearing age that would love to offer a loving home to an orphan? I'm kind of getting it. When is it too late to become an adoptive parent? When are you too old? That's a great question, (laughs) which is often hard for me to answer since I became a parent for the first time when I was 47 and then again when I was 52. So, you know, I wouldn't take kindly to anyone who told me I was too old, right? But I would say that, you know, in terms of the logistics of parenting, I think when you're getting into your 50s for the first time, that really is likely the the tail end of when it would be appropriate based on the lifespan and the actuarial charts and the need for you to be around to parent a young child. Now, adopting an older child, you might want to 
be a little more open to older parents <clears throat> because the child's already older in school and there's less need for the kind of intensive energy necessary parenting, if you will. Hmm. We're talking with Dr. Jane Aronson, who is an internationally renowned expert on adoption. She's got a new book called Carried in Our Hearts, which essentially is a series of first-person uh, stories by people who have actually been through the process and how they encountered it, how it changed their lives. Uh, doc, what about single women, single men, same-sex couples? Uh, is, is it more difficult for them to adopt, or are we finally getting over that? Um, well, in the United States, uh Single-parent adoption, whether man or woman and <laughs> same-sex couples, do very well. Uh, but internationally, there are no allowances for people who are uh, lesbian or gay. And certainly single men uh, were removed from the pool of international adoption years ago. But single women still quite open in most places, though clearly there's limitations now in the numbers of countries that are open. I want to pick up on something you touched on a minute ago. It's a great point you brought up, and that is the adoption of older children, because most people, you know, when you conjure the thought in your head, you're thinking of a little infant and starting from there. But, boy, I bet there are so many older children that are in desperate need of a home. That's really the most important place we should be. I mean, that's the story that comes out of foster care. You know, know, children grow quickly. They become older, and they are not as um, easy to manage, and people are not looking for an older child because they are afraid. They think the child has too many problems, especially kids who've been in forced to care homes and have gone from home to home and have uh, a social history that is challenging. And those are the children who really need the most care from us and the most guidance. And we really need to put more of our energy into helping those children uh, have a permanent family. So teens, of course, are the hardest People frequently are not interested in teens, sibling groups, and uh, anything over basically uh, three years of age becomes really challenging for people. People want babies. Um, Although I would tell you in my career as an adoption medicine specialist now, I've seen more and more people step up to the plate to adopt older children because that's who became available essentially. You know, as less and less babies were available and more and more older children were available, people stepped up and, and did special needs and older children. And we mentioned, Doc, that your book is a collection of really heartwarming stories about the power of love. Uh, is, is there part of a favorite one that you can share with us to just give us a taste of what the book is about? Yeah. Um, the, I, God, there's so many favorites, but uh, recently, actually, Shonda Rhimes' story, Surrender, um, was um, picked up by O Magazine in South Africa, that's an incredibly dramatic, brilliantly written story about um, one of her domestic adoptions. She has two kids adopted domestically. She's a shining figure in the story of adoption. You know, a single woman, very, very creative, obviously gifted, um, a gifted writer, a gifted human who really felt strongly and passionately about doing something, uh, you know, good for kids who already coming into the planet, not making them, if you will, and um, newly minted, as we sometimes call them. And then uh, another story which I love so much is a story by a young uh, a youth in her early 20s, just graduated from college and came at the age of eight from Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam. Her name is Huang Sutliff, H-U-O-N-G, S-U-T-L-I-F-F, and she wrote this fantastically um, evocative, painful, and yet optimistic story about her visit to her orphanage with her parents. They uh, all went as a family to go back to where she lived before she was adopted by her parents. Now, her parents adopted her when they were in their 70s. Wow. It's incredible. Which is, you know, amazing and awesome. You know, they had a family prior married, whatever their circumstances were, and then they decided they really wanted to give an older child a home. This story, I I read this story a lot at readings, and I cry. I get choked up every time. It's just fantastic. Then there's a lot of funny stories. There's people with such a zany sense of humor about challenges. Uh, uh, The uh, ones by Claude Nobler, K-N-O-B-L-E-R, from California, about his son, Nati, who was actually adopted at the same time my son, Des, was adopted from Ethiopia. 
in well, 2004. Well, you know what's clear, Doc, is that this is an incredible world that most of us know nothing about, and it's a world that needs hearts and giving people. And your book does a great job of communicating that. It's called Carried in Our Hearts. And even if you're not interested in adoption, you're going to know somebody who is. Let Dr. Jane Aronson help you along the way. Thanks so much for the chat, Doc. Coming up next, the man who made the movie Age of Champions and the lessons learned from a group of late-in-life superstars. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Bill Shaver with Mark Middleton, and our next guest here on the Growing Boulder Show is the co-founder of the Documentary Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to documentary production, education, and outreach. His first film got all kinds of international attention. It's called Age of Champions, and it shares the inspiring stories of five incredible athletes training for and then competing in the National Senior Games. Yeah, very cool. Age of Champions has been in limited release since 2011, but it made its national online premiere recently and can now be seen on PBS stations nationwide. It's also available for private screening to organizations that want to spark a community discussion on health wellness and active aging and what's more important than that let's welcome the director of the film christopher rufo hey chris how are you good morning doing great good to be with you first of all congratulations on the success of your film and give us the elevator pitch if you will what is age of champions about really what were you hoping the film might accomplish yeah well you know age of champions is the story of five competitors up to 100 years old at the senior olympics you know the the film focuses really on the incredible personalities. So you'll meet a 100-year-old tennis player, an 86-year-old pole vaulter, some swimming brothers in their 90s, and then a team of grandmothers in their 70s who are also basketball champions. What came first, Chris? Was it you seeing these people in action and thinking, wow, that'd make a great documentary? Or was it the idea of older athletes and then you discovered how cool they really were? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, we'd heard about the Senior Olympics, and it seemed like such a positive, inspiring, fun story to tell. And then once we actually met some of the characters, learned a little bit about their lives and read their stories, you know, we knew we had something special. And, you know, I think it just goes to show that if you are vibrant and active, you know, in your 80s, 90s, and 100s, you definitely have a story to tell. Yeah, they they are great stories. In fact, uh, you know, our paths in terms of content production have crossed a little bit. Uh, I think we've had three or four of the people that you've profiled on this program. In fact, we had uh, Roger uh, Gentilam on the program back in 2007 when he was uh, just 97. And as you mentioned, he was 100 (laughs) when he was in your film. And his is really a a very amazing story, Uh, isn't it, in the fact that he, he took up tennis so late in life? Yeah, it's it's true. He said he started playing tennis when he was 75. He saw an advertisement in the newspaper and decided to give it a try. And then, you know, 25 years later, he's still playing. And, um, you know, he actually got some great notoriety in the, in the media. And uh, he had a lot of fun doing it, traveled all over the world and, and met a lot of very interesting people. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, uh, he, he did pass away just a couple of months before uh, his birthday, uh, uh, at age 102, but but as I understand it, he played tennis almost up until he died. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think he played tennis till about just 10 days before he passed. So, you know, it just goes to show that you know his dedication and his, his level of passion for what he was doing, and um, and uh, and then his time came. When you were out there, Christopher, did were you like a kid in a candy store? I mean, everywhere you pointed or looked, was there another great story, or were these people really head and shoulders above the rest? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. We, at the very beginning, we sent out a casting call to all 10,000 athletes that compete in the Olympics. 
and we got a response from about a thousand. And of course, there was a lot of very good stories, but I think the five stories that we chose to focus on in the film really did stand head and shoulders um, above the rest as not only great athletes, but you know, really inspiring life stories and people that are overcoming, you know, very human obstacles. You know, in the film, there's one character who's going through chemotherapy for cancer. Um, another character who recently lost his wife. And these are the kind of human stories that we wanted to tell and show people, you know, overcoming these challenges that happen to everyone when you get older. And, you know, we, we find, Christopher, and I imagine, uh, you because know, I'm, I'm curious to hear your reaction, your personal reaction to hanging around with these people, because, you know, we, we find that we have a lot of people in their, you know, teens and 20s and 30s that listen to this program, you know, be, because... What we can do beyond the age of 60 and 70, 80 has totally changed in the past 20 years. And the message is at least as powerful and maybe more powerful for people in their 20s like you are, uh, you know, that, that lets you know that it's never too late to do anything. How were you changed by the process of hanging out with these people? Definitely, yeah. I think it, it does that. And it also gives you a sense of perspective. And what it did for me is just kind of deepen my respect and admiration for that generation. Um, you know, it's our grandparents' generation. They lived through the Depression, fought in World War II, um, and really kind of built up this country um, after the war. And, you know, you get a chance to really hear those stories, to really give a, you know, give them the time to really tell you about their lives. And, um, you know, I, I would encourage everyone my age before that generation is gone to really sit down and ask people about it and ask them about their lives and get a little bit of window into even our own history. You know, ageism uh, still does exist. It's quite strong, and uh, films like yours just really go a long way in blowing that totally out of the water. Uh, do you think that, that people your age are starting to see more than just the grumpy old men and you know grumpy old women out there that they're starting to see that, yeah, you can, you can live a full life all, all the way to the last drop? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've definitely been keeping my eye open for stories in the media, and it seems like every year there's more and more stories that are featuring older people in a really positive way. Um, and even Hollywood movies that are featuring, you know, older adults um, and kind of breaking that stereotype. And I think it's really positive. I know in my life I definitely approach um, older people, of course, with a little bit more patience in some ways, but you know, also now with an expectation that, that they can really do anything that they want and they can continue to do it until very late in life. Amen. We are speaking with Christopher Russo, folks, who is the producer and director of uh, a documentary called Age of Champions. And, and Christopher, was there, did you notice any common threads in terms of either lifestyle or personality traits that were shared by those that you profiled that might help account for, you know, what they've done, that they've been able to maintain this, this sort of excellent activity as they get older? I did. I think in addition to kind of the basics of a moderate, healthy lifestyle and food and not smoking and not drinking. Um, I think the one secret that I learned that was a bit surprising was that I think a lot of their success is attributed to their strong family and friends and supportive social networks. So, you know, all of the athletes that, that we met that were really thriving had very supportive families, had very supportive friends, and were really involved in their communities. They weren't kind of detached from the people that they were living around. They were kind of an integral part of their communities and they really fed off that support and admiration. And, you know, they become, they became kind of what we would think of as the older notion of the respected elder. Um, you know, people really were excited to be around them, wanted to hear about what they were doing. And, you know, they became this kind of, you know, mini celebrity um, in their communities. Hey, Christopher, how can uh, people see your film if they don't catch it on television? Sure. If you don't catch it on television, you can visit our website, ageofchampions.org. You can also purchase a DVD on Amazon or download the film on iTunes. Well, good stuff. Listen, we commend you for picking this topic. We know there's going to be a lot more to come from you and, and a wide range of topics and making documentaries as you go along. But this one, Age of Champions, will really hit home with everyone, no matter who you are or where you're from. If you want to live life to the fullest, check it out, ageofchampions.org.
Coming up, how hard is this? Becoming the oldest female Winter Olympian ever and then switching sports to try to make the Summer Games in 2016 at the age of 63. You'll meet her next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, Mark Middleton's alongside, and we first interviewed our next guest a few years back. She is one of the most remarkable athletes in the world. She made her first Olympic Games appearance at the age of 34. Well, that was a while ago, because since then she's competed in six Winter Olympics in the Luge. She is the first female six-time Winter Olympian and the oldest Winter Olympian ever, earning her the affectionate nickname Grandma Luge. And you know what, Bill? That's all in the past, what? because she's got something even more amazing planned. She has now switched to the sport of archery and is training for the 2016 Summer Olympics oh. in Rio. And we're not talking about the Senior Olympics. We're talking about the Olympics if she makes it, she will be 63 at the time and the only female to ever compete in a combined seven winter and summer Olympics. Welcome from her home in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, Ann Abernathy. Hey, Ann, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Oh, are you talking about me? I was listening to the introduction and I went, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> what is it with you? Shouldn't you be resting on your laurels? Aren't you supposed to be slowing down and looking for ways to take it easy instead of chasing what is nearly an unachievable challenge? Oh, now, come on. It's not unachievable challenge. As a matter of fact, the oldest woman to ever win an Olympic gold medal did so in archery at the age of 63. So, you know, I'm not even paving the way. I'm just following footsteps of somebody else. <laughs> and the first time we had you on this program, man, you shot an arrow right through our hearts because <laughs> we fell in love with your passion <laughs> and your excitement and your enthusiasm. But we were both scratching our bald heads here trying to figure, why did you choose archery? Why did I choose archery? It's got no, you know, I thought maybe it'd be something that was kind of like a warm luge sport. <laughs> well, uh, the thing about archery is I'm pretty sure I'm not going to break a bone doing it. <laughs> My physical therapist is so relieved. <laughs> but, man, I mean, it takes a ton of skill. I mean, you can't just kind of fall into it. How good are you? Well, I was in a World Cup uh, in Colombia three weeks ago. It was my first ever World Cup. And, uh, I, you know, I've, I've only been shooting seven months. So for me to be in a World Cup was kind of, you're doing what? Uh, but I went down to see how I stacked up against the competition. And they have uh, a world ranking system. Uh, the World Archery does ranking, and it's based on four competitions. Well, I've only been in one World Cup. But I'm ranked 273 out of 471 women in the world. So, uh, you know, for my first time out, that's not too bad. And as I understand the story, Anne, uh, you know, archery obviously is a highly skilled sport, but a very technical sport that requires cutting-edge equipment. And, and you basically were competing with an old William Tell kind of, you know, these little bow and arrows <laughs> that we had as kids, right? Well, not not quite that bad, but, yeah, <laughs> close. <laughs> But the um, uh, World Archery, uh, I, I was in a, a small competition, not a small competition, it was over in Dominican Republic, uh, and it was a world ranking event, and they saw how I was doing with uh, equipment that wasn't quite up to par, and so they got their sponsors, and and um, I'm now practicing this week with my brand new bow and arrows, and, and uh, they're worth more than my car. Oh, <laughs> You know, Hello? So, yeah, you're still there? Did you, are, Can you still hear us, Ann, or did you shoot Yeah, did, yeah, I, I, I've I thought, got you. I thought maybe an errant arrow went right through the phone line. No, 
You, you know, no, I, I, I think it's my public trying to call me, but no problem. <laughs> something else that, that we want to point out about you, Ann, and another reason that we dig you so much is that you've had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma more than once. You've had every reason in the world to say, you know, I'm done. You know, I'm just going to relax, like Mark had pointed out before. Where, where does this come from, and how do we get some of what you got? Well, you know, there's a song out there, uh, Live Like You Are Dying. And prior to my first Olympics, back in the 80s, I had a doctor told me, uh, he told me, uh, you can't train for the Olympics. I said, why not? And he said, uh, because you're probably not going to live that long. You need to f- focus on your cancer. And I said, no, my job is to get to the Olympics. Your job is to get me there. So, uh <laughs> You know, everybody's always told me that I can't do it because of the illness. And and, uh, what happened was the next time I went to the clinic, instead of being the um, cancer victim, I became the Olympic hopeful. And people look look at you differently when you have a goal and when you're focusing on something other than the disease. And so... Uh, training for the Olympics, whether it's luge or archery, was something for me to focus on other than my disease. And uh, the doctor that told me I wouldn't make it to that Olympics is no longer here, and here I'm training for uh, 7th Olympics. So it's just a matter of perspective, what you want to focus on. It is a matter of state of mind, and speaking of your mind, Uh, (laughs) Be careful here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of ways to go with this. You suffered over 30 broken bones and a severe brain injury in a luge accident. And in fact, your recovery from that injury involved a unique therapy that was featured on the Discovery Channel. Uh, In in 40 seconds, if you can, tell us what that was about. Well, um, I did brain biofeedback therapy where they actually attached wires to my brain and uh, we trained my brain waves by uh, playing games. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't have a, uh, a control. I had a, uh, I controlled the whole game with my brain waves. Wow. Uh, and it's kind of like playing Pac-Man with your brain. And it had never been done before to the extent that I was doing it or for the reason that I was doing it. And now uh, it's become a fairly well-known technique. Uh, There's brain biofeedback therapy uh, used every day now for kids with ADD and stroke victims and head injury people. But I was one of the first people uh, to go through this uh, therapy and to test it out prior to the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. 30, se- 30 seconds, Ann. Give us a, a quickie. What, what can we learn from you? What's the takeaway? Well, <laughs> I've always said when people said, tell me that I can't do something, I always say, why not? Uh, I always question people that come up and say, you can't do that, or you shouldn't do that, or you're too old for that. or And my biggest response is, why not? Well, and Why not? You know what? You're making a big difference in a whole lot of people's lives because we all need to hear that message again and again and again. This is Ann Abernathy, folks, the oldest Winter Olympian ever, now switching to the Summer Olympics, trying to become a seven-time Olympian. Good luck, Ann. We'll keep an eye on you. Folks, there is always and it's never too late thread that runs through this program because that's really what Growing Boulder is about. But today's show is especially strong on that message. We had Dan Butner saying it's never too late to adopt a longevity lifestyle. Dr. Aronson saying it's never too late to adopt. And, of course, the examples of Ann Abernathy and the others who are proving that it's not too late to get in shape and compete. Never too late to become a champion. And another great example, Mark, was Harriet Lake proving every day it's never too late to make a difference in your community. And if you haven't already, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where we'll keep you up to date on all things growing bolder. See ya.
Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Proud me, heated brow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Oh